I, I kind of want to pick up, we didn't quite finish chapter 30, uh, sorry, chapter 10, everything dealing with Peter and Cornelius. But I think almost everyone was here uh, last week. But as you know, quickly, real quickly to summarize, Peter has been in Joppa at the tanner's house named Simon. Uh, he receives this remarkable vision and the point of the vision filled with all kinds of animals, unclean and clean, that it is to signify to Peter that the old order is gone, the new order has begun. Kosher food is no longer relevant to the Jew because of the finished work of Christ. And the, and I, the way I like to put it, the new order has begun, as you know. And so Peter is therefore able to receive the summon from Cornelius, who's up in Caesarea, which is about 32 miles to the north. And the, the people who are sent by him take him back to uh, Caesarea, and uh, he, um, uh, he meets with Cornelius and, um, and his family and so on, which we're about to look at. Perhaps the most important point is in verse 28, and he said to them, and he is, this is Peter talking, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or even to visit any one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, again, those words common or unclean are from the perspective of the Old Testament, are from the perspective of the Mosaic Law. The vision that Peter received is that distinction no longer exists. Now, that, that's kind of where we left off. Everybody with me on that? And if you don't have that background, then what's going to happen here in verse 30 and following is not going to be as, uh, as meaningful. So verse 30, and Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, which would be three o'clock in the afternoon. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa. Ask for Simon's called Peter. He's lodging at a house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord to say to us. So uh, there's not a lot to say there, but that's just making the transition from what Peter has been saying to now Caesarea and Cornelius. What is Peter going to say to Cornelius? I want you to observe something in verse 33. The first person plural pronoun. Now, therefore, we are all here. So Cornelius has gathered, and we'll find that out later in the chapter, his family, as well as presumably his servants and others. So there's this remarkable sense of expectancy from Cornelius and these people. It's almost like what you and I would kind of say, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. It's it's that kind of, I just can't wait to hear what you have to say to us. And that's really the sense of this. So Peter has been prepared through the vision. Cornelius has been prepared because the angel spoke to him. Both have responded in faith. And now you have Peter's uh, kind of little mini discourse 
I hesitate to call it a sermon because it isn't really a sermon, but he's not going to talk to them. And the very first thing he says is, is really astounding. It really is when you think of what had been his life uh, for, you know, he's probably about 40 years old here, late 30s. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. What's remarkable about that? Because Peter is a Jew, and all his life he's been told, you are part of the chosen people of God. You have an inside track with God. You are the covenant people of God, etc., etc. Now he says, God shows no partiality. Question. Yeah. When, when did Peter um, be? When was Peter chastised by Paul for for not meeting with the Gentiles? After this. Yeah. After this. Yeah. This com- that comes later. Uh, that comes. Uh, that comes almost. Uh, almost 20 years later because the Antioch experience is recorded for us in Galatians 2 and by that time Paul Paul is a key leader in the Antiochian church and um, it's right before the first missionary journey so I mean this is that that comes later which just shows how that cultural distinction between Jew and Jew and Gentile is hard to break. And so Peter, this goes ahead, that was a really good question Fred asked there, that confrontation between Peter and Paul uh, is recorded for us in Galatians 2, and that, that's, that's down the road a little bit from this. So here's, here's Peter, I mean this is just a remarkable thing for him to say. I now understand that God shows no partiality. It was that vision that we read about last week that convinced him. And then he says something else. Verse 36. But in every nation, the word that's translated nation is ethne. What English word do we get from that? Ethnic. So, you know, again, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of Greek words, but sometimes it's, it's helpful to see what the Greek word and see how I bring it into English. So when he says every nation, when you and I hear the word nation, we think of a country with boundaries and a specific government. That's not what he means by that. But people in every nation, every ethne, every ethnic group. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it's an all-encompassing sentence. But in every ethne, anyone who fears him and who does what is right is acceptable to him. Um, so every people from every ethne, every group who fear him. Now, we have said this many times, but I'll repeat it. The word fear is a worship word. So it, it does mean, and it can mean, to you know, kind of cower in fear. But that's really not the sense of this. And it's, 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 it's worship who worship and adores and defers and treats him as awesome and who does what is right, who's walking in love. He is acceptable to him. Now, how do you become acceptable to him? Through Christ. And that word acceptable, that, that's, it's from Decamai. It, it, it really could be translated is welcomed by him. 
is embraced by him. I mean, it's a very intense word that's translated acceptable here. And so, you know, Peter is just testifying right away in verse 34 and into verse 35, a fundamental change in how he thinks about things has occurred. Peter has a different worldview now. Peter has a a different perspective on how he looks at Jew and Gentile. Before he came, I mean, you know, this is one of the things Jesus was trying to teach these guys, but it takes the progressive understanding by the disciples about Jesus takes time, just like it takes time for you and me. But it's, so Peter is now with this visionary, he's now understanding what God has been saying. There is no distinction anymore between Jew and Gentile. Galatians 3.28, in Christ, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, none of that means anything anymore. At the cross, everyone is equal. At the cross, I mean spiritually, everyone's equal. And so Peter is just testifying to that. And it is, uh, this is astonishing for him to be able to say these things. And so he's... It's actually a testimony. It is. It's a testimony. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's a testimony, a witness to the transformation that has occurred. Mm -hmm. And he is thinking fundamentally in a different way. And he's pleasing the people that he's talking to. That would be pleasing for them to... It would. It would. It would. And I mean, that's, that's what, um, and as we move into the next several chapters, that's where Paul will come on center stage and he'll take this message to the Gentile world. And he's going to go to the Greco-Roman world and declare this. And that's still what we're doing today. You know, we're still declaring that, that uh, in Christ there are no distinctions. There, there's not supposed to be any distinctions. Now, again, we're not talking about, I'm not talking about, and he isn't talking about socioeconomic, he's not talking about any of that stuff. What he's talking about is at the cross, from God's perspective, everyone needs Christ and there's no distinction. And when you come to Christ, there's no distinction. In in heaven, in in, in the coming kingdom and all of that, those those distinctions that are kind of important to us now aren't going to be important at all in the new heaven and new earth. But that's beyond this. So it's just, I just want to stress again, when you and I read something like this, we say, yeah, I've been taught that all my life. But for a Jew in A.D. 35, 36, something like that, to declare this, it's just an astonishing statement for him to make. I saw several hands up. You know. so how, how's that conflicting? So he says that stuff with the equality and no partialism between... At the cross, at the spiritually. Cross. But then he still struggled with Paul, and they had to have potheads about that big time 20 years later. So he was, how does that make sense? Well, I mean, <laughs> all that shows is that Peter continued to struggle with that issue. When he's up in Antioch, when it's recorded in Genesis, uh, Galatians 2, he makes a decision, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles. I'm going to just eat with the Jews. And you think, well, what's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal because in Antioch, the vast majority of people in the Antiochian church are Gentiles. And so for Peter to be 
eating only kosher food in whatever this meal was and whatever the event was, is sending a message. That's why Paul, he, if you go back and read that in Galatians, I mean, Paul really comes unglued. I mean, he really chastises Peter. And I mean, it's public. I mean, this isn't he say, Peter, come over to this room. You and I have need to have a talk. No, this is public. Everybody's listening to what he's saying. And he is publicly rebuking and humiliating. Well, maybe I shouldn't say humiliating, but he's rebuking Peter because Paul understands, Peter, if you continue with this kind of practice, you are forming two churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church, and never the two get together. That is not what Christ is about. So Peter was struggling with his status, maybe human status as... I think he, let, let's, use, let's use a different word than status. He is struggling with his Jewish tradition. I mean, that is, and that is compelling. If you know any Jewish person that's come, or even a Muslim person that comes to faith in Christ, they're turning their back on hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition. And they're saying that's it's not it's, you know, particularly for Jews. It's not that that's wrong, because that's part of the Old Testament, but it's been fulfilled, and I don't need to do any of that stuff anymore. And for a Jew today, it's, you know, you, you have 1,500 years from 1446 B.C. when the law was given until Christ. And you have another 2,000 years, so you have 3,500 years for the Jew today of tradition. And to turn your back on that, you've all seen Fidler on the Roof. And Tevye's word he keeps bringing up is tradition. He has no idea of why he believes all this stuff. I mean, it's, that's kind of the funny thing about it. But, I mean, but he does it. Why does he do it? Because everybody else in my family for generation and generation has done it. So I do it that way. And his kids come along and they, you know, they don't get married the way he wants them to do. But if you remember, the one place where he draws the line is when his daughter decides to marry a Gentile. And if you remember that musical. And he won't do it. He will, he will not accept that. And even after they're forced to leave Russia, he does not talk to that daughter and her husband as they go. Well, anyway, Fred. The other small point in, uh, in that uh, testimony by Peter, uh, does what is right, is, is works to glorify God as opposed to works to justify yourself. That, that's right. I, I mean... Peter is, uh, Peter is just quickly summarizing this, but it's clear as he's going to say as we move into the next um, couple of, of verses, he's going to talk about faith in Christ, he's going to protect the importance of faith in Christ, which produces these kinds of things. Acceptable worship, acceptable works, if you will. So in verse 30, um, where is that, 36, now notice Notice how he says this. Again, what I'm trying to get you to think about is here's a Jew who's come to faith in Christ, he's one of Christ's disciples and apostles, trying to speak the truth to a key Gentile military officer of Rome. And so he says, and for the word that he sent to Israel, now, Remember that? Israel's the ethnic group. But what's he talking about? The word that he sent to Israel. 
preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all. And so all Peter is doing is he's connecting the ethnic distinction of Israel, where there was a distinction, God sent Jesus Christ to us first. But look at the words he chooses to use. Preaching good news, good news is the gospel, of peace. To a Jew, he's, he's speaking in, in Greek here, but to a Jew, what's the Jewish word for peace? What's the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. So that's what he's saying, to preach shalom. Peace with God through Jesus Christ, parenthesis, he's Lord of all. And so, you, you, I mean, in that sentence, you have profound theology. Jesus is the Messiah, because Jesus Christ, Christ means Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Oh, and he's Lord of all. And the Greek word for Lord is kurios, but when you bring that into Hebrew, that would be Adonai. So, I mean, Peter is, Peter's using Jewish language, speaking to a Gentile, summarizing what the gospel has done. It's brought shalom to the world so that the distinction between you and me before God is no longer important. And that's because Jesus, he's Lord of all. I don't know if you're getting all that, but it's just, it's, it's just, it's, it's really deep and profound what Peter is sharing here. And this is what Cornelius and his family, they're just hanging on every word. Because there's Cornelius know that the word first went to Israel. Yes, because he had converted to Judaism. Remember that, we talked about that last week. Cornelius has converted to Judaism. Cornelius, who was a Roman military officer, head of 100 soldiers in the cohort of the Italian cohort, which was a part of the large legion which uh, resides up in Syria. I mean, he's really an important guy. He's following God, but he wants to know more about this Jesus. And that's what Peter's doing. So he's using the language that Cornelius, even as a Gentile, would be familiar with. All you, in verse uh, 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from ba ba Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good, healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That is a very unusual way to put that. That is almost not used in the New Testament. Paul will use it in Galatians. But that is a reference to Deuteronomy 21-23. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Now, in the ancient world before Rome, that meant hanging something on someone who's a convicted criminal on a tree and their body would just stay there. And it would just deteriorate. I know it's, a, it's an awful thing to imagine, but that's what you did. That criminal is an example. That's what will happen to you if you do that, whatever it is. But by the time of Rome, the execution was by crucifixion. So hanging on a tree is the cross, and that means you're cursed. 
And he's using that, that is Peter's using that, to summarize again that Deuteronomy 21, 33 teaching, uh, uh, 21, 23 teaching, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Meaning what? Christ became a curse for us, which is what Paul says. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all, to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses. All right, now there's a key, key word. And you can see from verse 37, 38, 39, until we get to 41, what has Peter been doing? He's summarizing the gospel. He's summarizing the public ministry of Jesus. He's summarizing what Jesus did in Judea and Galilee. But then he uses the word, God chose us as witnesses. Why does he say it that way? I want you to think about that. Why is he declaring it that way? God has chosen us as witnesses. Look at the relative clause that follows. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. What are they witnesses of? The resurrection. Peter is saying, and we, and it's, it's first person plural pronoun, so it's all the apostles and the hundred and so odd people that saw Jesus after he was resurrected. So Peter is saying, to use the word witnesses, that means I am a witness to that event, the resurrection. And with me are dozens and dozens of other people. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Go ask Mark. Go ask Matthew. Go ask Bartholomew. Go ask Andrew. Et cetera, et cetera, as well. I mean, there were dozens of women. And, you know, there were just several dozen people. And Paul talks of 500 people who saw Jesus after his resurrection. So I'm saying all this because this isn't, this isn't a legend. This isn't a story. This is a verifiable historical event. And you understand that sentence. And you understand why I'm putting it that way. Because that's what Peter's saying here. This isn't just some story. The Greco-Roman mythologies had lots of stories of people being resurrected, people coming back to life. But that's part of the whole mythology of Greece and Rome. Peter's saying, this happened in history, and there are hundreds and hundreds of witnesses to this. This isn't a legend. This is, this is a verifiable historical event. As a matter of fact, if you just take the numbers, and you just take the, the records that we have, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most attested events coming out of the ancient world. Do, do you know what I mean by attested? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's, 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 it is true, and it's the kind of thing, well, I don't care what the evidence is, I'm still not going to believe it. That's what so many people are saying. But I'm serious. The evidence for the resurrection as a valid, verifiable historical event is overwhelming. I mean, it really is. It's a verified, it isn't just a myth, it isn't just a legend, but many people refuse to believe it and still say, well, it's a myth. I don't care what the evidence. I still am not going to believe it. Even outside of the biblical, even outside of the, the biblical, but I mean, it's it corresponding with that, and all of the things that just go with, 
attesting that event and validating that event. How any historian looks at any event and tries to amass the evidence to say, well, this has really happened and this is how it happened. I accept it. I mean, none of us, not any of us, now some of you are old, but you're not, not any of us knew George Washington. I don't think any of you knew. Oh, you did. I mean, none of us know, knew George Washington. But do any of you want to sit here and say, oh, I, I'm not sure I believe in George Washington. And we say it because we're taught it, it's in our history books, but you go back and you have to dig. And so what does the historian do to prove that George Washington really existed? Well, you look at his diary. You look at the historical references by many other people to George Washington. I mean, I'm being a little silly because, I mean, everybody... But what I'm just saying, you do the verifying work to prove... And I just finished reading a book on... I don't know if you know this, but much about this, but I just finished reading a book on the attempt by the European monarchies to save Nicholas and Alexandra, who were the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution when the communists seized control. And they, they took them way out into Siberia. And if you remember, in the 19th century, almost all and early 20, almost all the monarchs of Europe were, were intermarried and were related to one another. They were all descendants of Queen Victoria. I mean, it's really, it's really, and everybody, and it's really the attempts to save them and rescue them, but it was almost impossible to do it. And the reason I say all that is because the, the historian who wrote the book is a woman named Helen Rappaport, but she explains throughout the book the difficult attempts that she, the difficult th th things she had as she attempted to get evidence for this. She says, I heard this story about this attempt to rescue them, but I couldn't verify it. Well, I'm telling you all that, not to be about the book itself, but here's an historian trying to do work about a very important event, trying to rescue the Romanovs, the last of the Romanovs, Nicholas and Alexander and their five children. By the way, did they succeed in rescuing them? No, the Bolsheviks executed them brutally. It was a brutal murder, one of the most brutal murders you can imagine. Um, and then what they did with the bodies, and it's just pretty horrible. But the attempt, and so there were a number of these things. This is a story of an attempt by this group to rescue them. I can't verify it happened. So I'm not sure it really was true. That's the work of an historian. A working historian trying to get the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is going to really have an awful lot of evidence to look at, a great deal of evidence to look at. That's going to validate, yes, I believe this is a verifiable event in history. Now, I'm going to make the conclusion this is true. And on April the 3rd, AD 33, a man named Jesus died on a cross outside the walled city of Jerusalem. That's an historic fact. Now, what next is, three days later, he came back to life. And so you go look at the evidence. And, you know, many historians say there's a preponderance of evidence that three days later, that is exactly what happened. On April the 5th, A.D. 30, he was raised from the dead. Peter is just saying, I'm a witness to all that. I ate with him. I drank with him after he rose from the dead. Verse 42, and he commanded us, 
meaning he and the other apostles, to preach to the people and to testify. Now, preach and testify are two different verbs. To preach, to proclaim, and to testify. To present the evidence. That he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, so let me stop there. It's one of the things that you see in several of the Old Testament prophecies, and it takes you to the book of Revelation. Living in the dead. Some of your old translation of King James says the quick and the dead. But those who are alive and those who are dead, those who are dead will be resurrected for judgment. And to him, verse 43, all the prophets bear witness. What prophets? Who's he talking about there? All the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. All bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. That was prophesied. That his death, burial, and resurrection would provide the opportunity to have your sins forgiven. That isn't just a New Testament truth that's in the prophets. And so Peter is tying the night really, not really quite tightly here as he gives a summary of the public ministry of Jesus. He says he's crucified and was resurrected and we're witnesses to that I ate and drank with him after his resurrection. And he said he has now given us the job to proclaim this truth and to testify, give witness to it. Because after all, the prophets had prophesied this. And we're here to explain, as the prophets have said, forgiveness of sin comes through his name. In fact, I mean, it's really a, a remarkable summary, starting with that declaration, God shows no partiality. Okay? In this very convincing sense, he told about how Christ was put to death hanging on a tree. Yes. Which was very final. That's right. And then he talked about God resurrected him. You know, that's just pretty convincing. That's right. That's right. That's right. And how they, how they, all the witnesses to his resurrection. That's right. They ate and drank with him. There can't be any question about that's what happened. That's right. And again, I mean, that, for you, you know, we are so familiar with reading this stuff in the Bible that we go, yeah, I read that about a hundred times. But don't look at it that way. And that's the way I, I, I explained a couple minutes ago. Look at it this way. This is an historical, verifiable event. I mean, that's how, that's how he is saying this here to this Gentile military officer and his family. What I just explained to you is an historic, verifiable event. And everything hangs on you making a decision of whether it's true or not. What are you going to do with that? See, that's what C.S. Lewis was doing in Mere Christianity, which I'm sure you know. He was asked by the British Broadcasting Company to deliver a series of messages during World War II to encourage the British people which I can't, they would never do that today. That would never, ever, ever, ever happen today where they ask a guy as a Christian to encourage the people of Britain. 
Now they would have somebody go on to discourage the people, tell them that there's nothing about Jesus. It's all false. It's all in error. But what, what Lewis did is he just walked the people through the claims of Christ. In that very, very famous sentence in what then became the book, Mere Christianity, he says, you got to come to terms with Jesus. I mean, he either is a liar, and everything that the Bible claims he said is a lie, or he's a lunatic, because some of the things he said, only no sane person would say, unless he's God, or he is who he says he is. And what Lewis would say over and over again, there are only three choices. When it comes to you, you only have three choices. You don't have many, many choices. Well, I am not, you know, I'm going to sit on the fence. No, 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 no. It, there is so much evidence. You have to make your decision. Is he a liar? Is he crazy? Or is he who he says he is? I mean, there are the only three choices. That's what Lewis did so effectively. And what Peter is saying here is, I am a witness to everything I just said. And he has charged us to go out and tell the world about this. I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said in, in verse 41. There's so much power to him being a witness as well, because it's not a makeup story. He actually lived and died with that story. That's right. So he believed in that story and, you know, that he witnessed as a witness mm -hmm. to the last day of his life. And he gave up his life, you know. At the last minute, if he was a liar witnessing that, he would say, you know what, I'm sorry, you know, just, but he didn't do that. He, Peter himself and all the apostles and all the witnesses lived all their life to the last day and died for that story that they had been given. And that is one of the, it's, it's a logical uh, argument, but I think it's still effective. You look at all of these early leaders of the church who were the witnesses of all that Jesus did. What happens to every one of them except John? They're martyred. And you really have to think about this. And I don't think that's an illegitimate way to present the argument. You don't have one person. You have dozens and dozens and dozens of people who were witnesses to all of this. And when they're ready to light the fire or they're ready to bring the decapitating axe or they're ready to nail them to the crawl the various forms of execution... If it isn't true and it's a made-up story and you're just trying to spread a made-up story, are you going to really die for that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's a legitimate thing to say. It isn't just one person. Well, that person was a little crazy anyway. No, we're not talking just one person. We're talking about dozens and dozens and dozens of people. Eventually hundreds of people. Eventually thousands of people who believe this. They believe the witnesses. They believe the truth. And they're willing to die for it. And still going on today. This is actually why I became a Christian. So it's very legitimate argument. Because I was looking for apostles and if they make up a story or not, and they're willing to die. So actually I became a Christian for that reason. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's great. I think I remember you told me that once before. But that, that is an effective part of the gospel story. And it really is. It's an important part of the gospel story. All right. Now, question here. Oh, yeah. I just uh, my version uh, here of Peter's account is that they killed him by hanging him on a cross. So there they use the term cross instead of tree. And then there's a footnote back here, like its Hebrew counterpart, the Greek for this word could refer to a tree, a pole, 
a wood beam or cross or some similar object. Yeah. The reason I bring that up is in another group we're studying Joshua. And oh. The mm-hmm. five Amorite kings. Oh. Joshua hung them on a displayed them on a pole. That's right. Now would that have been Hebrew? At the, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So. The word cross apparently came more into being later on in, in, in references, you know. Definitely, uh, definitely. It became a symbol of, of, of the Christian faith. That's right, because of what happened to Jesus on it. The, the, the method of execution we call crucifixion started with the Persian Empire, the Parthians they were called at that time, and Rome picked it up quickly. And Rome most extensively used crucifixion as a form of execution, but it didn't originate with them. And that's when, and that's of course with what happens to Jesus, tree really in the Greek word becomes associated with cross, that on which Jesus died, and many, many other Christians. Maybe your uh, study Bible there has a note on that too. Peter, when he was executed, and because he was not a, a Roman citizen, he would have been crucified. The tradition says he made the determination and insisted that Rome execute him by crucifixion upside down. And that the cross was turned upside down. So, I mean, just picture that in your mind. That's a tradition. I mean, the Bible doesn't record Peter's death for us at all. But that the tradition says that Peter insisted because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way my Savior was. And that tradition has he was crucified upside down. That's one of the 9,762 things we can ask when we get to heaven. Is that tradition about Peter true? It isn't matter, I guess. But let's move on to verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, in other words, the language of, and the ESV really captures that, well, the language of this is as Peter speaking, what happens? The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now I want to remind you of something. These are Gentiles. This is a Roman military officer. These are Gentiles in a Gentile city, Caesarea, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Now that immediately should take you back to Acts 2, Pentecost, and Acts 8, when, there, when Philip is in Samaria. Now it's with Gentiles in Caesarea. Why is that same language used? And you're going to see it again in Acts 19. Why? Because everyone experiences the same thing. Why is that important? Everyone is equal under Christ. Everything's equal under Christ. The Jerusalem church, Acts 2, is not some super elite group. We're the only ones who receive the Holy Spirit. We're the only ones that speak in tongues. Ha, 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 we're better than you are. You can't say that. Because everyone experiences the same new covenant blessings in those early days of the church. And it validates what Peter says in verse 34. God shows no partiality. Jew and Gentile now in terms of God's redemptive plan is irrelevant. And so you see 
And the believers from among them, among the circumcised who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Because the people that went with Peter from Joppa to Caesarea were part of that Jerusalem group, and they're standing amazed that this military officer and his family and the people who are with him are experiencing exactly the same thing they experienced. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. That's what they're hearing. That's what they're amazed about. There's no partiality with God. And so in the early church, in these early days, God is making certain that exactly the same thing happens as Acts 1.8 is lived out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Because the Holy Spirit is the mark of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit is the mark of the new order. The Holy Spirit is the energizing power of the new order. And Jew and Gentile have exactly the same power and enablement. Now, I hope you're following me there. This is an extremely important point because it validates, Peter says, God has shown me there's no partiality and there is even no partiality in the church. You see, this is everybody, everybody comes to Christ in the same way. I don't mean the same method, same, it's just everybody comes to Christ in the same way, by faith, like a little child. And there's no distinction. Everybody has to come to Christ in faith. And so there is, there's equality at the cross. Nobody can say, well, I came to Christ because, I mean, my stock portfolio was much higher than yours, and I have two cars and you only have one I mean on and on that has nothing to do with it that doesn't matter to Christ and the rich person and the poor person the black person and the yellow person and the white person all come to Christ in the same way by faith in his son and what he accomplished across his resurrection and that's what Peter Peter heard God say that he saw it lived out and now he's seeing it again what God told me what God has shown me and Peter just has to keep relearning this. <laughs> and then several years later in Antioch, he has to learn it again. And Peter declared, I'm in verse 46, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember, We've talked about this many times in the study of Acts. Baptize, this is the ordinance, this is water baptism, but it's that public identification with Christ. And they're right along the sea in Caesarea, so they probably went out into the Mediterranean Sea, or maybe some other means of baptizing. Look what Luke does as he concludes this chapter. Then they ask him, meaning Peter, to remain for some days. So he stayed several more days with Cornelius and his family. Where's he staying? In Cornelius's house. What's he eating? Cornelius's food. And Cornelius isn't a Jew, so he's not being fed kosher food. And he's fellowshipping. And that's why Peter, sorry, that's why Luke adds that. They ask him to remain for some days, and that's what he did. Evidence. The new order has begun. Here's a Jew fellowshipping and eating with Gentiles in a Gentile home. 
I mean, it's just, it's just really kind of a significant marker. Yes, the new order has begun. And it's kind of an exciting thing to see. All right? Yeah. Um, we were, Bio and I were wondering uh -huh. back in the day when we were studying about the other place where they were speaking in tongues that you talked about. Sure, Pentecost. sure. At, Pente in Pente at Pentecost yeah. in Acts 2, yeah. And, and uh, we weren't sure who was speaking in tongues. Um, were they hearing in tongues or were they all speaking in tongues? <laughs> And well, the Peter and the Jewish brothers who were with him that travel with him from Joppa are hearing Cornelius and his family, and apparently it was his friends too. It doesn't give us a number of how many people are there, but they are he they Peter and his friends are hearing them speak in tongues because the Holy Spirit has come upon them. It's not the Holy Spirit that's speaking. It's, uh... It is. They are speaking in tongues. They, meaning Cornelius and his family, and like I said, presumably there are friends that are with him. It seemed like it, uh, it's more than just his immediate family. But the Gentiles might have been in different areas. And yes. They understood it in right. their language. That, that's right. That's right. I mean, this is... This is uh, and the thing, the thing about the account here in Acts 10 is he doesn't explain it. In Acts 2, he explains all, who all the different people are. Remember, these are part of the Jewish diaspora. They've come back to Jerusalem for the feast days and all of that. And they're from all over the place. And they all speak various languages because they're from different areas now. It's been hundreds of years since their families lived there. But anyway, the remarkable, that's easier. But here... All he says is that how he doesn't explain the numbers, he doesn't, explain, he doesn't tell us all that. It's just, this happened. Because all he's trying to show, he is Luke who's writing this, all he's trying to show is, in the early church, every ethnic group has experienced exactly the same thing. They receive the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues, there's evidence that they receive. So it's exactly the same thing. Nobody can claim a superior experience. You know, doing away with a hierarchy, doing away with the idea of some super spiritual group. Everybody is the same at the cross and the experience of coming to Christ. And that it's sometimes we miss that. That is the main point of all this. Why that is of what he's telling us, the evidence of this. And it's it's really quite astonishing. All right. Everybody with me? Any questions? We hardly ever finish a chapter in here, but we did. We're now we're in chapter 11. So what Peter does now, and this sets us up for um, what Luke wants to do next. He wants to show, now listen very carefully to this. He wants to show that as more and more Gentiles come to faith, it creates more and more of a problem. What's the problem? The Jewish Christians, I'm not talking about the Sanhedrin, I'm not talking about the, the Orthodox Jews who have rejected Jesus, I'm talking about the Jews who have accepted Christ in Jerusalem. They're going to start to get more and more concerned about all these Gentiles coming into the church. And that's why in verse 19, 
uh, Luke is going to shift to Antioch. He's going to explain some things up there. But this is getting to be a concern. What is the concern? Yeah, we're being outnumbered. And so there's a little bit of pride there, but there's also, is there nothing? Is there nothing about the Mosaic law or the Mosaic tradition that these Gentiles should do? Is there nothing important about our heritage? Because this is one of the issues, and it's still an issue today, this is one of the issues. These Jewish people accepted Christ as their Savior. He's now their Lord and Master. Should I still circumcise my boys? Should I still observe the feast days? Should I still keep the Sabbath? Should, should, I, should I still at least go up to the temple? Should I maybe pray there? Do you see? See that cultural pool? 1,500 years of tradition. My, my dad, my granddad, my great-granddad, my great-great-granddad, go on, 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 on. He all, they all did this. Now, I'm not going to do it anymore. And I mean, it, it's, it's just the human, un, and I, you all can understand this, the humanity of this. Am I really to turn my back on all, and I don't have these Gentiles, I don't want them to do anything? And this is going to become so tense that in Acts 15, four chapters from now, we're going to have the first great council of the church, Jerusalem, in AD 49. And the Jewish leaders and the Gentile leaders are going to sit down. And the question is going to be, do the Gentiles have to do anything regarding Mosaic law? It isn't about salvation. That's not the question. Is there nothing? And, and it, I'll keep you in suspense. I don't know if it's possible when it comes to the Bible, but keep you in suspense about how they're going to resolve this. But you're starting to see this tension is going to start to grow now. And just look. Look at the first couple of verses of chapter 11. Now, the apostles and the, the brothers, these would be the, the people who come to Christ, who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. That we received there is decamai. Welcome, embrace the word of God. So Peter went up to Jerusalem. When he went there, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That takes us back to chapter 10. He's up there with Cornelius, drinking Starbucks coffee. He had ham. He had pork. By the way, pork was a delicacy to the Romans. They loved pork, but it was a delicacy. So I think Cornelius probably fed him pork. I made that up. I don't know that for sure. So, now, now, so immediately, immediately, you see, the, where is Peter? He's been all through uh, the Judea and over along the coast where Gentiles live and all that stuff. He goes back to Jerusalem and the circumcision party. Who is this? Well, these, this, these aren't Pharisees. He doesn't say that. He's not being criticized by the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin. This is, and it's, it's really hard for, for us to make our, get our arms around this, but this is the struggle. Here you have these Jews in Jerusalem who have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're still holding on to some of their traditions. Do they understand that to mean this is how I get saved? No, 
No, that's not. They understand salvation is by grace through faith. But my Peter, you were up there. You were with uncircumcised men and you ate with them. You ate their food. Peter, how could you do that? And so this, this is a very significant group among Jewish Christians, albeit seemingly small. It's not a huge group, but this, this group, and they're still holding onto some of their traditions, and they're struggling with Gentiles who don't follow any of this. Gentiles who eat pork and eat ham and, and mix, uh, you know, mix butter with beef, which you're not supposed to do in Jewish I mean, all this stuff. And they're just saying, the issue for us, Peter, is the unclean eating with the clean. That's Jewish language. That's kosher language. We just can't get over that, Peter. So what Peter does in verse 4, I'm not going to read all this, verse 4 to verse 14, what Peter does is he just summarizes everything that happened. His vision when he was in, uh, in Joppa with Simon the Tanner, and all that happened subsequent to that when he goes up to meet Cornelius and all that, he summarizes all of it. Look at verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. It's what we just read at the end of Acts 10. The Holy Spirit fell on them. Notice how he says this. Just as on us at the beginning. The beginning of what? Pentecost. When this all started, as we experienced the Spirit and we saw him come upon us and we're speaking in tongues and all of that, that happened to them up there, those Gentiles. What's Peter saying? It's exactly the same thing. Because with God, there is no longer any partiality. There's no longer the separation of Jew and Gentile. The kosher laws don't mean anything anymore. Verse 16. Oh. I'll never get all this done. So verse 16, he takes them back, and he remembers something Jesus said, something John said, and if you want to know what that means, come back next week. I just It's impossible for me to, to, to deal with verse 16 through verse 18. There's too much in there. There's about 15 minutes of stuff right in there. So he rehearses and reviews what happened to him, and now he reaches the punchline. You guys have got to break with your tradition, and here's why. And it's very powerful. It really is very powerful what Peter is doing. That sets us up for what happens in the rest of chapter 13, uh, or rather chapter 11, because we, we go up to Antioch, which is largely, overwhelmingly Gentile. It's kind of neat what's happening up there. All right. Are you with me on all this? We're dicing through this, but it's, it's really important, I hope. I, I think it's really important, and it's just a kind of thing to see what God's doing as he's growing his church. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. It's now afternoon, but thank you for the time. Thank you for these guys that are willing to take time out of their busy schedules and come on a Wednesday to study, to uh, sit around and fellowship around the Word of God and learn and be instructed. 
We thank you, too, for your faithfulness to us day in and day out. Remember Jim as he's going through the treatments, give him stamina, give him energy. We trust you with all of this and pray that you will watch over him as he has a number of more treatments yet he has to go through. And I, I thought, too, uh, this morning of Glenn. I think he's back uh, in Pennsylvania with his dad, who is uh, ailing. We certainly remember him and the family members, too. And others who are not here today, we ask your watch, care, and blessing over them. Now, as we go our separate ways, Lord, we thank you for this day, another day of life. May we represent you well throughout the rest of this day. In the name of your dear Son, we pray. Amen.